Good morning. My name is Stephanie Rudman, and I'm a member here at Redemption. We are going to be looking at the passage in John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Again, we'll be looking intently to this passage as it points us to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he was made, he has made him known. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning. It's good to see all you guys. Enough new faces. Um, just want to reintroduce myself. My name is Carl. I'm one of the elders here. And I'm a resident physician at the Medical College of Wisconsin, so this isn't my main job doing this, but... Uh, I'm not originally from Wisconsin either, I'm from Colorado. And so when my family and I made the decision to put MCW really high on my rank list for residency, I learned a general truth about life, and I learned it very clearly. My rank list ended up reflecting my greatest priorities in life. And why is that? It's because where we choose to live, it tends to reveal what's important to us. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about where God chooses to make his dwelling place, where God chooses to live. And it reveals a lot about what's important to God. There is no more free of a being to make such a choice as the absolute and sovereign ruler of the entire universe. And yet, he's always chosen, and he chooses now, and he promises to always choose to dwell among humans. Today's passage is John 1.14, and in this verse, 
John reveals something about the Word that I want to spend a good deal amount of time thinking about. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what I want to zoom in on today is this idea of God choosing to dwell among us. And to see this development in John 1.14, it's going to be helpful to zoom way out. And I think we need to look at a, honestly, just a major theme throughout the whole Bible. The theme of God choosing to dwell with man. So here's the plan this morning. We have to see how monumental of a development John 1.14 is to all of redemptive history. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to focus in on God's dwelling place and how humans fit into it and how we mess it up. And so part one is going to be man no longer dwells with God because, of course, the Bible reveals to us the main problem that exists when it comes to God dwelling with humans. But then we'll see that God intervenes by his choice, by his grace. And John 1.14 shows the main new development that we celebrate at Christmas time. It's, it's an awesome development. I'm pretty pumped to get there. Part two is God comes to dwell with man. And then we'll just take a look at two simple implications of God dwelling with humanity, just two general domains of life where we can apply these astounding truths of God. But hearing that, <clears throat> I'm going to need some help. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you. And thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word made flesh. And we thank you that you've revealed your glory through him, that you've revealed yourself through him. And thank you, Lord, that through God the Son, incarnate, through Jesus, you've created a way to dwell among us. I pray for these people today. I pray that, you, that they would avoid the temptation that's so common in our lives to undervalue dwelling with you. Show us our sin, Lord. Please help us repent and encourage our hearts this morning. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he filled that earth with all sorts of amazing and really good things. And then he does something spectacular. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. So right away, let's be clear. God made humans with a very intentional and specific image-bearing capacity. And should they live as designed, very good things happen. Very good things happen vertically between humans and God. Humans working as designed glorify God by accurately bearing his image. And very good things happen horizontally between us humans and even between humans and the earth. And in the beginning, God made a special place on the earth to really show off this design. This is from Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, the ideas generated by the word Eden are somewhere between pleasure and delight. And so in this garden of delight, humans and all of life 
lived as designed. And there's two dynamics that I really want to zoom in on here. We need to see the horizontal dynamic, human to human, and the vertical dynamic, human to God. You see, God in his goodness, he makes humans male and female. He gives them each to each other in a special kind of covenant relationship. And together, as equal image bearers of God, they live out the human design. In the garden, we see a complete humanity, one that's fit for the other, each distinct and yet complementary. They're both for each other, naked, unashamed, living together in harmony in a perfect garden. But even more importantly, in the garden of delight, we see a covenant relationship vertically between humans and God. In that garden, God dwelt with, God dwelt among his image-bearing humans. There was a type of relationship between God and man in the beginning that was unmarred and uncorrupted, a covenant relationship between the creator and Lord of the universe and these image-bearing humans who were to rule the Garden of Eden and to rule the earth under him. And with any covenant relationship, there, there are rules. They're good rules. They're appropriate rules. Honestly, they're pretty simple rules. Since God is the creator, he's the one who gave life to all the humans in the first place, he has a right to command a particular, let's call it covenantal kind of obedience. In other words, God is king. And should humans keep this covenantal relationship by obeying him, they'd go on filling their design. They'd go on living together in perfect harmony. God would be with them, dwelling among them, filling this world with image-bearing humans, bringing glory to God. But church, let's never miss this. God chose because it's important to him, by his free will and grace, God chose to live among humans. But we know that this uh, did not stay that way. Adam and Eve, deceived by a lie, decided that living in covenant obedience to God was limiting, limiting them. And Adam, the first human, it bro he broke the covenant that God established at creation, and he disobeyed God. And so we have to catch the profound tragedy in this verse, Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And where once, had human, where once humans dwelt in unashamed delight with God, now there's shame. Now there's guilt, there is now fear, because the covenant was broken. A perfect, righteous, holy, eternal God, creator, covenant Lord, he was sinned against. And in his perfection, God must deal with sin. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man no longer dwells with God. And soon we learn that man no longer truly dwells with man, at least not in harmony, not perfectly. The marriage relationship is now doomed to experience strife. The work of man to subdue the, to subdue the earth is cursed. It's hard. It's 
fruitless. And now there's a kind of spiritual darkness in creation that causes strife and jealousy, which of course leads to death. The ultimate fair and right consequence of covenantal disobedience to God, death, is here to stay. Covenant relationships between humans are fractured horizontally and man no longer dwelled with God. But God wasn't done yet. He intervened. And even as God is forcing Adam and Eve out of the garden of delight, even as God is proclaiming the curse that will rule over creation for millennia, he says this to the enemy, the ancient serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Even from the beginning, God makes it clear he has a plan to fix this terrible sin problem. He has a plan to once again make it so he can dwell among humans, a plan to restore us to a kind of relationship that we saw in the garden, and it's going to happen through an offspring of Eve. It's going to happen through a human. And so a family line is traced through the story, a line that would produce the promised serpent head crushing offspring of Eve. And it's revealed eventually that this new, that this better Adam would come through the nation of Israel, a nation that God himself made, though they didn't really deserve it. And we're going to pick up the story again after the nation of Israel is established and they have the rule of an earthly king, and when they're building the temple of God in Jerusalem. But as we're fast forwarding, please don't miss what God's doing here. Through this foreshadowing symbolic institution through the temple complex, God is revealing his plan to once again dwell among man. And God is revealing what the promised offspring of Eve has to do to make that happen. We read this in 1 Kings about the temple. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, he's, who's building the temple, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I'll establish my word with you which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people, Israel. Man, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Once again, God is choosing to dwell with humans because he wants to. It's important to him. Israel didn't deserve this kind of divine favor. I mean, God choosing to dwell among his people that he made for himself of his own good free will. That says a ton about God. It says a ton about his glory full of grace and truth. And yet, and yet, there are some really key differences between God dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem and God dwelling in the Garden of Eden. There are three major differences, and I think they can be summed up with three Ps. So you're welcome for the alliteration. Partition, priest, and propitiation. We'll start with partition. The design of the temple, that ultimately goes back to the design of something called the tabernacle. And of course, this is like painfully simplistic, but we can think of the tabernacle as more or less portable temple. And what's important is that in the book of Exodus, God gives the people of Israel very specific instructions on how to make this tabernacle. And here's where I want you to latch on to. The tabernacle housed the presence of God. God dwelt there. 
And so it's important to design this tabernacle, which housed the presence of a holy God in a way that didn't result in unholy, not righteous people literally dying, which is what happens when unrighteousness sees the fullness of God's glory. And the design of this tabernacle uses a series of curtains to create partitions or rooms, and they separated God's presence from his people. And that's important because when the temple was built, it was designed to very precisely recapitulate this partition of the tabernacle. There were all sorts of outer rooms used for various religious services, but there was only one room where God dwelt. There was a most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in fact, there was literally still a curtain that hung between the holy of holies and the adjacent room. And to make things even more symbolic, the walls of that holy of holies and the curtain itself had pictures of flowering plants and palm trees all over them. It was supposed to be a reminder of the Garden of Eden. The room itself was set in a way that the entrance was to the east, just like the entrance to the Garden of Eden, now guarded by a cherubim. Oh, and the Eden-esque garden curtain, just happening to face the same way as Eden, had pictures of the same cherubim on it. So obviously, God is illustrating something about dwelling among humans. He's illustrating something about our relationship that still needs to be fixed. The second P that illustrates a difference between the temple and the garden is the office of priest. For a holy and righteous God to dwell in the midst of a not holy, not righteous people, there has to be a mediator. And in this time period, they were, called, they were citizens of Israel called priests. They were go-betweens who helped the people of Israel interact with God. And importantly, there's a hierarchy of priests with only one of these priests called the high priest able to truly meet with God. And only that one high priest could, on very specific, special, and unique occasions, go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And even then, they couldn't go in and still live if they didn't have some type of third P, propitiation. And of course, I mean the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices, which God set up to cover over sins. And the author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 9. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Again, for a holy and righteous God to dwell in the midst of a not holy and not righteous people, there needed to be a separate place that protected Israel from God's presence. There needed to be a mediator in the form of a high priest. And even that one mediator was not perfect. He needed lots of purification to avoid dying in the presence of a holy God. And he was restricted in his access to once a year. So church, this system... This foreshadowing institution was meant to make it overwhelmingly obvious that man no longer dwelled with God, not like in the beginning, not like in the garden. God was revealing that there needed to be something better, a better temple, a better priest, and a better sacrifice. There had to be a perfect God housing and yet human Fully obedient, new and better Adam to solve what that first Adam broke, the covenant relationship with God. And for hundreds of years, Israel had no choice but to cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
But God wasn't done yet. Jeremiah 31. Man, this is a good verse, or rather verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Part two, God comes to dwell with man. We spent some time in Genesis already this morning, so I don't think it'll surprise you too much to hear that when John in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's a Genesis 1 reference. John is insisting that the identity of the Word be tied to the biblical storyline in general and to God of the Old Testament in particular. And in this series at Redemption, in the Advent series, we've already made the connection that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed identified as God the Son, incarnate, fully human, fully divine. Now, why does that really matter when it comes to God dwelling with humanity? It matters because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word is Jesus of Nazareth, and He is the promised Christ. He's that offspring of Eve. He's God the Son of Car- incarnate. Quite literally, God has come to dwell with man. In Jesus, God the Son, in human flesh, we have a reversal of all those three Ps we saw in the temple in Jerusalem. The three Ps that made it obvious that God still needed to do something to repair our relationship with Him. Because in Jesus, we have a new temple in his body, a new temple that removes the partition between us and his glory. The new temple allows us to, as John says, right here in 114, see his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. And where once humans were restricted in their access to God, where once the sight of his glory would literally kill us, Now humans can see Jesus and see the very glory of God. Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, it caused the temple curtain to be torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing, of course, that Jesus is reversing the need for the partition. He frees the way for God to dwell among humans again, like the garden that the Holy of Holies was meant to remind us of. In Jesus, we have a better priest as well. He perfectly fulfills the role of priest that we saw in the old temple, a priest who entered once for all into the holy places, a priest who didn't need to be purified by animal sacrifices because he offered a better and more perfect sacrifice in his own blood. 
And line by line, item by item, the symbolic differences between how God dwelt among man in the Garden of Eden and how he dwelt in the midst of man in the tabernacle and in the temple, Jesus fixes it all and he moves us back towards the design in the Garden of Eden. The partition is torn because the perfect sacrifice was made because the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. The priestly role was fulfilled in a perfect mediator, God the Son, incarnate, full of grace and truth. And the propitiation was satisfied because in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, this is what John is saying here. This is the praiseworthy claim for us to latch on to today. God dwells among us through this newborn child. And there's a verse in John 14 that I think really snaps this into focus. So I would ask you to hear this and let your hearts be encouraged. He says this, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. We should be hearing all sorts of overtones of the Garden of Eden in this verse. Humans are interacting with God. Humans are living forever. Jesus, the God-man, forever king in us, we in God, covenant relationship restored. God dwells among us through this new baby born in Bethlehem. Man, this is delightful theology. (laughs) But what do we do about it? That's always a question. So here I just have two simple implications of John 1.14. Implications of God dwelling with man. And since God restored the covenant relationship with him in the vertical, human to God dynamic has been fixed through Jesus. Our first implication is this. We're never truly alone. Again, in John 14, we read this. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, that's dwelling language. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So it is vital that we hear this. The Bible clearly reveals that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus and Jesus alone, Christ alone, restores the covenant relationship with God that we have broken. And the Bible is also clear through the very words of this God-man, Jesus, that this new and heavenly kind of dwelling with God, it depends on us loving Jesus, on us receiving Jesus as God the Son incarnate. The work has been done by him, and we have to receive it. Throughout the Gospel of John, this receiving is taught to take the form of belief. We need to truly and actually believe the claims of Jesus, and we need to love God the Son incarnate. And through that love, choose to walk in a new kind of covenant obedience to him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, Jesus said. So how about you? Do you love Jesus as God the Son incarnate? Do you truly believe that without the work done through Jesus, his life, his death, 
his resurrection, you could never dwell with God. Do you still, like Adam and Eve way back at the beginning, view relationship with God as limiting? And if so, I would just simply ask you to consider this. Is it not better to live with God than be alone forever in rebellion? Now, for all you members of redemption and for anyone who has publicly proclaimed your belief in Jesus as the long-promised offspring of Eve, for anyone who says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, here's where I just want to lovingly challenge you with this reminder. Even though you will feel like you're alone in this world, you aren't. If you love Jesus, if you keep his word, God dwells with you. He's made his home with you. This holiday season in our culture, it's just packed with opportunities to make you feel lonely. It's essentially designed to do so, so you buy stuff. The festive cheer often points out many of the gaping holes in our lives. It points out family and loved ones lost, relationships broken. It makes sickness invading and threatening to undo our lives particularly threatening. Tight finances seem to manifest. Difficult marriages get worse. Seemingly unbreakable sinful habits have a crushing weight to them. It's like all the lights on the houses provide even more space for the spiritual darkness in our lives to grow. And it can seem like we're ever increasingly alone. But because of Jesus, that is not true. That is a lie from an enemy designed to crush you. But a serpent-crushing God-man king has come. And you're not alone. He's not going to leave. Dwelling in you right now is the spirit of the living God, an effectual promise that God will continue doing his work in you, and he will continue to be with you until revelation is true, and we once again physically live with God in a new heavens and a new earth. But even now, there's a spiritual truth that I'm begging you to reflect on this week. You are never truly alone. Because God dwells among us through Jesus, we can talk to God, enjoy being with God in an unrestricted way. So please don't go on assuming there's some partition in your spiritual life separating you from God. And if there is, namely, if there's some sin that you haven't repented of yet, Repent. Just give it up. It's not worth it. Bring it to God. Bring it to another follower of Jesus. In faith, turn back to him. Through faith in Jesus and obedience to him, we have personal relationship with God again and ever increasingly closer to the original design that we see in the Garden of Eden. And church, this, this kind of life, it's just worth it. Implication number two, let's pursue dwelling with God. Because God has not only fixed what's broken in the vertical between humans and God, he's also fixed the horizontal between us, between each other. And since we've already spent some time talking about the temple this morning, there's a really cool New Testament edge to this that I want to read. 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So redemption, you and me, us, we here together are part of the temple of God. God is making former rebels, former sinners, 
just like Adam and Eve, like Israel, breakers of covenant relationship. God is making these kinds of people into a new spiritual temple where he himself dwells. And it's all by his grace. It's to his marvelous glory. And it works. Praise God. We're all being built into a real spiritual dwelling place of the creator and covenant Lord of the universe. And I just got to ask, is that important to you? Really, please examine your heart. Do you want to dwell where God dwells? Because where we choose to live, it tends to reflect our priorities. God moved heaven and earth and became flesh to dwell among us. And God dwelling among his people is very important to him because, of, I mean, literally all of history revolves around it. But how about you? Is your desire to pursue dwelling with God having an impact on the trajectory and the operations of your life? And does your schedule accommodate other living spiritual stones being built into a house for God? Are you increasingly desiring to live life together with other Christians so that you might have fellowship with God? This comes from 1 John chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So are you letting the richness of God's dwelling place steadily change you and make you more like Jesus. Because if you do, very good things happen when God dwells among man. So I just want to close today with a personal story of how this pursuit of God's dwelling place can change a life and how it can soften a hard heart and bring profound and even unexpected joy. I mentioned earlier that um, I had to make a rank list to choose my residency. And I also mentioned that the rank list quite literally revealed my priorities in life. I used an algorithm developed by an engineer friend of mine to literally weight different categories, like, you know, important things, bikeability and uh, access to, like, disc golf, <laughs> but, you know, salary and, and other things. And at the beginning of my interview season, the categories were weighted to very practical, earthly things. Institutional prestige, programmatic strength, ability to create a promising career, you know, things that would make me seem impressive. So naturally, places like Yale, Stanford, Mayo Clinic, just to name some you may have heard of, they were in the list and they were major contenders. But at some point in the interview season, my very wise mother simply challenged me to prayerfully ask God where he wanted me to go. And so I did. On the flight to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I prayerfully decided that I would allow God to direct my residency decision. And I asked him just to direct me. And when I landed in Milwaukee for my MCW interview, I had one of the most distinct spiritual impressions of my adult life. I honestly had a distinct spiritual impression that God had something for me to learn here. And even though on paper MCW wasn't the best option, I couldn't help but feel drawn here. And I didn't understand why, but now I do. So let me enclose just by encouraging you this morning. What God wanted me to see was far less about my glory as a young pathologist. And by his grace, he's helped me shed much of that selfish ambition. What God wanted to teach me here was how glorious it is that he dwells among mankind through you.
through the process of being a member in this church with you, I've seen very good things happen. I have seen God change hearts. I have seen former rebels come to faith and experience new fellowship with God. I have seen people repent of long-standing and crushing sin and find unprecedented freedom. I have seen God intervene time and time again in people's lives in a way that has increased my desire to pursue dwelling with God in a way that I could never have imagined. And I thank God for you often. I can honestly give my life and experience as a witness that if you would join me in this, if you would join me in doing our utmost to joyfully submit to God more in life, year after year, we're going to find fellowship with him and with each other. And it's all to his glory. It's all because of his grace. And it's all because God dwells among us through this newborn baby in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful work. Thank you that even from the very beginning, you've designed us to have fellowship with each other and fellowship with you. And even when we mess it up time and time again, you are so kind, gracious, and powerful to fix it. All glory be to Christ. Amen.